I was an ESOL teacher who co-taught with other classroom teachers and I also pushed into rooms and did some pull out. I guess from those experiences, I developed an opinion. I can be a little strongly opinionated. An opinion that co-teaching was really hard on adults, but best for kids. Hey everybody, welcome to the ML Chat Podcast. You are in for a treat today. We are talking with Kimberly Peterson, the EL Program Coordinator for Winchester Public Schools in the state of Virginia. And Tim, I enjoyed this conversation, man. We, we, we talked through an OCR audit and everything that comes from that. We talk about co-teaching. We talk about program design. Now, what, what was your favorite part of today's, today's interview with Tim? If you are in the, if you are in programming, uh, this is the episode for you. Um, you know, I, I loved hearing from, from Kim, you know, specifically on like the finer points of developing student-centered programs. You know, my favorite uh, was when she started talking about roster equals responsibility. That when the student is on your roster, you have a responsibility. Tag, you're it. Step up to the plate. Let's make sure we give each of our students exactly what they need. And uh, I thought I just that really resonated with me because, you know, it's not a matter of waiting for somebody else to, to step up and do it. Um, if you just have one multilingual learner who comes into your class, uh, tag, you're it is kind of the way that she talked about that. You know, it's your opportunity, your responsibility to make a difference for that student. And maybe maybe there's not a, you know, an, a specific EL specialist that's going to step in and help, you know, come save the day, if you will. No, but there are also implications for capacity, right? For building capacity. And, you know, and I appreciate how Kim spoke to that, both from the teacher perspective and from the perspective of program coordinators. All right. Well, let's jump into it. Let's bring in Kim. Thank you very much, Justin. It's nice to be here. Well, Tim and I have been looking forward to this and we're excited to kind of jump in and learn more. We know you have a lot to share with us, but let's start at the beginning, as is typically is a good spot to start. What brought you into this work of serving English learners, multilingual learners? Was it something you just happened upon or was there a lot of gravity that pulled you into it? I think it was definitely at the pull of gravity. So my students brought me into it. I was a kindergarten teacher. After having taught some private school, pre-K situations, parochial school, I certified and got a master's in education from Wilmington College and began teaching in York, Pennsylvania, which is part of central Pennsylvania. Our little city in York was, I'm currently in Winchester and Winchester reminds me a lot of York City. York City had become very much heavily populated with our Latino families. With the Latino families in York City, and this was back in the 1990s, <laughs> their population for Latino families was about 45%. So what ended up happening was Back in the day when my kindergarten class was a morning class and an afternoon class, my morning class would fill with folks who got there first. All of our morning classes filled because we transported to some after-school daycares for the afternoon. So the morning classes filled up very quickly. Our afternoon classes, however, 
usually filled from the sidewalk on the first day of school. So these were often folks who came the first day of school realizing that they needed to register their children for school. And oftentimes, or I even venture to say most times, these were families who hadn't seen the announcements in English in the local newspaper or on the radio that school was going to be starting or that certainly kindergarten registration was going to go on. So they got last minute information and filled that afternoon class with students who came from homes who spoke another language besides English. So it took me a couple of years of seeing this pattern to figure out that, okay, maybe this is explaining the difference in some of my classes and how my morning class seems to move ahead pretty quickly with our curriculum. And my afternoon class is always slower before thinking about whether or not it could be an English learning challenge for that classroom. I wondered, you know, what, why is the afternoon class always so much slower than the morning? Is it me? Am I lacking energy in the afternoon? <laughs> um, you know, you have to take everything down and repeat the whole thing when you teach two half day classes and act like it never happened in the morning. No one was ever here, but they really progressed differently. And my school district was very forward thinking at the time in offering because it was about my third year with York City Schools that they offered a tuition covered for us to certify and go through a certificate program with Penn State taking classes in teaching ESL. So I jumped onto that opportunity because two things really. I wanted to better support my students who were in my afternoon class at that point in time. And I also, by that point in time, by that third year, had just fallen in love with the families. My kids who came from our Latino families had such strong family backgrounds and parents who just really stole my heart with their stories and their desire to have their children learn to speak English and have opportunities for schooling in the United States. I was just enthralled with their culture and the opportunities that they were seizing for their children and wanted to do better as a teacher to support them. That is so fun to hear your story. It really was the heart to the students. They grabbed you, their families. That is fun to hear. Tim, I saw you you were resonating with the enrolling students on the first day of school. It made me think, Kim, you know, just about the importance of the whole notion of meaningful communication with families that's so crucial in, in Title III. And so in the, thinking about the foundations of, of Title III. And so that's what I was processing, Kim, as you were sharing, as you were sharing that. Title III and some of our laws that stem from things like the Dear Colleague letter, we've come a long way in the last couple of decades in terms of, I think, most districts following the voice of the law and that we need to have communication out there for parents and families in a language that they understand and how vital that information really is and really can be. Um, just an aside story to that registering kids on the sidewalk, we did once in my first couple of years have a student who was literally dropped off with a backpack and no information, had never been registered, no one knew his name. They brought him to my classroom and he couldn't speak English 
and I am not a native Spanish speaker as my second language, so I was no help. There was another student there, kindergarten student, who was bilingual, and so the office secretary asked him, the other student, please ask him, what is your name in Spanish? And so he turned to him and said, say your name in Spanish. <laughs> that was not helpful. But we did ultimately find where the child came from and the parents to whom he belonged. And they were able to be called to the school to actually complete the registration process. And he was placed in my class. But yeah, I mean, it's very challenging. And my little school district currently in Winchester, we've gone through some of those growing pains in the last year and a half as we have just become a refugee resettlement city. And mm -hmm. a lot of us were very good with our Spanish translations. We have a Spanish-speaking bilingual parent liaison, at least one of those in every building. And we have a dual language program in four of our seven schools now. We are very small. So between our dual language program and our parent liaisons, we have a lot of bilingual folks in Spanish and English in our buildings. So that communication has become, I want to say almost second nature for us in Winchester. But when we started receiving our first refugee families from Afghanistan, this was a new challenge for a lot of folks here. And we've had to rely on really two interpreters who we can call in and we pretty much need them living with us because they can help us with Farsi, Dari, Pashto, the new languages. And it's actually still within our greater U.S. society limited in terms of some of the materials that we can get for those newer languages. And Dari, Farsi, and Pashto, are those the same folks that speak all three languages, or do you have different interpreters for each of those languages? We have interpreters. There's one who can do all of those, and wow. one who just does a couple of them. And the families usually have one. Some of the families, they might be able to speak Dari and Pashto, and they do tend to understand Farsi if they speak Dari, because that's a dialect of the language. This is so interesting. Oh, this is so, I know. I, I want to jump to this too. This is, I, I want to unpack this and go further in. But I want to go back to, you know, you're in your third year of teaching. You had a chance to go to Penn State and go get your ESL certification or I don't know what they called it back then. And then you come back and tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about what you learned maybe going through that certification and then what it was like coming back into the classroom and then I know you moved down to Virginia. So maybe walk us through that part of your story, if you don't mind. Okay, sure. Um, well, I taught the whole time, and it was a, a part-time TESOL certification program through Penn State. Don't ask me if I would do the summer in between the two years that I did it ever again in my life, because my own kids were in middle school, and I took two courses that summer and was literally reading at stoplights, people honking and saying, why won't she go? Because there was no time to read. It was terrible. It was craziness. So um, after I had my certification in ESL in Pennsylvania, um, I taught four more years there um, and they, they made my kindergarten classroom self-contained. Um, so all of the children who were placed in my classroom were um, active English learners. Now, they weren't all level one coming in. Some were really quite bilingual, um, but they still needed services. It was an awesome community. 
um, classroom. I would do that again in any second, especially since they made it full day and I no longer had to do the circus thing of the two half days. <laughs> um, it, it was really wonderful, um, you know, working with all the families and with all the kids um, in that self-contained situation. Um, I never had after that another self-contained situation when I when we moved to Virginia um, and I taught in first Chesterfield County outside of Richmond um, for a few years and then um, moved on to Prince William in Northern Virginia. I was an ESOL teacher who co-taught with other classroom teachers um, and I also, you know, pushed into rooms and did some pull out. Um, I guess from those experiences, I developed an opinion. I can, I can be a little strongly opinionated. Um, an opinion that co-teaching was really hard on adults, but best for kids. And I will say that because the year that my principal in Chesterfield, the first year I was there, she caved. She caved to us and made it easy. Oh, just pull them out. And she caved to some parents. So that was an interesting situation. We were opening a new school in Chesterfield. About a third of the school came from upwardly mobile um, social backgrounds. And those children from those families had never been in school with English learners before. They were coming from a pretty homogenous schooling background and to put it mildly some of the parents in that situation were upset they were upset with the idea that perhaps the english learners who were going to school with their children would be very needy and would cause the teachers to have to pay a lot of attention to them and or it might to use the term i hate dumb down the class which none of those things have to happen but it was their fear. And because I think that there were all sorts of easement issues and legal issues with opening the school and we were supposed to be in in August, we didn't move into the new building until the end of February. Parents were also upset that their kids were in trailers stuck behind all these other buildings. You know the things that happen in schools. So my poor principal was being run ragged by these parents and just said, just pull them out. So that's what we did. We pulled them out pretty much. I pulled kids from first and second grade and did all of their language arts in a trailer. Um, we started out in the little makeshift cafeteria at this annex building, but that was a little difficult because I had to stop teaching when it was lunchtime and they would plunk down the mayonnaise and the ketchup. It was time to, to stop learning. If anyone listening is an L teacher or an ESL teacher or has been, I know they know what I'm talking about. We teach in closets. We teach in things labeled I've seen as learning cottage, which means trailer, but it's a really nice name for a trailer. And it was okay. But the following year, my principal really was our second year and we we're all moved into the school. She really was passionate about the idea that we would co-teach. And so we got to school and she said, okay, your, your stuff is going, is in your co-teacher's classroom. She took away our rooms without telling anybody. It's like room gone. I think I was in tears looking back, but by parent open house night, 
I realized the value of this because instead of coming by to see me or maybe stopping by, oh yeah, that's our ESL teacher, that's our L teacher, I was part of the room. I had fifth graders for math and language arts and I had first graders for math and language arts and flip-flop all day between the two. And the students just really identified with me as another teacher in the room. Oftentimes staffing does not permit for that much coverage and our ESL teachers get spread a little too thin for it to be that effective. But there it was. The kids didn't have to leave the room unless they were part of a small group that we were leaving the room for some targeted instruction and we had a purpose for leaving to a smaller space. And it wasn't necessarily just English learners who were doing that. It was based on instructional need and not, you're an ESL student, you need to go out to a trailer. What an image of contrasts, Kim. Yeah. I could see the mayonnaise jar. I could see, I could feel how it must have felt to to pause the instruction. And you said something that that really, I think might have actually picked at an old wound. <laughs> We're at the scars that we build. And that is co-teaching or integrated ELD is hard on adults, but best for kids. It is and, very hard on adults. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I say that because it's very challenging for our teachers to... I think teachers are pretty autonomous by nature. I've known an awful lot of them over the years who like to shut that door and do their thing. Sure. But do you feel like that, that do you feel like that's more more a result of our mental models for what teaching is or what how it is that we grew up as students and watching our teachers because it is a lot easier, actually, when we're working with others for the benefit of our students. And it's that last part of your comment that's really resonating me, the notion of best for kids, especially when we think about collaboration, right? And yes. The collaborative part, if they cross over that bridge and allow themselves to see, oh, look at what happened with that lesson when she or he did that, and can reach that point of sharing, it's actually easier. But for some reason, everybody's got their toolkit and it can be really difficult. In Winchester, I really have no problem convincing at the secondary level. Our middle school and our high school teachers seem to do this very well, maybe because they're content oriented. It, it just lends itself to naturally like... Um, you know, I'm teaching English, they're teaching English, we're going to do this together, I'm going to be in that room for my kids. They do that really well, whereas elementary has had, they've had struggles with letting go of doing their thing. That's so interesting. And not to say that, oh, I make a talk for ages about, mm-hmm. <laughs> about this. I actually had the opposite experience in, in, in leading the shift in, in, in my school district, where yeah. the, the, it strikes me that when you contrasted the first year to the following year of your, you just, what I believe you described your principal as pausing on the implementation of co-teaching. Mm-hmm. And it sounds to me like the conditions weren't ready for it, that we hadn't really have the right system conditions for really situating co-teaching for success. Am I reading too much into that? Or Not at all. I, okay, okay. So picture this, an outhouse for a bathroom, like where we 
we're in this annexed area of K through two, and then three through five were over behind another elementary school. They had to build like an outhouse thing with, it was like we were at camp. So when it rained, the kids were literally trudging through the mud to go to the bathroom or to come out to my trailer. Yeah, and it also sounds like as far as like, readiness with the community, readiness with families, the communication required for basically like changing programming or changing yes. the lived experience in school for kids. You know, it just wasn't ready yet. And that yeah. starts with some culture clash, right? So uh -huh. when we were, I remember standing in a trailer, which was a first grade classroom for the back to school night with the parents. And the one father was getting rather heated about why do our students have to be in trailers? We're really unhappy. And I had a Latino father who was standing next to me turn to me and say, why is he upset about a trailer? I live in a, we live in it. That's our home. We live in a trailer. And I just said, people have different preferences. People live different ways. So there really was a culture clash to speak of. And it, I think it took the kids being together to overcome some of that. That was diplomatic of you, Kim. <laughs> diplomatic response. Prince William was where I went through my OCR experience. So I was an L teacher, an ESOL teacher for Prince William, my first two years there. And then I went into the their ESOL office, program office, as a specialist for the first year. And then I became a coordinator in that program. In that program, I, once I became coordinator, I was the professional learning coordinator and I had no idea what was going to happen. I should say with that job to that job, what was looming ahead because my first year in the L program office there, my director was brand new and they had sprung it. It was kind of not a settlement agreement for office for civil rights, because we've been in this little suit problem with them. And it was a tremendous amount of work to submit all sorts of things. They wanted data sideways and upside down in terms of what our service models would look like, what our staffing models would look like to put a long story short. In most states, I haven't run across a state where very clearly in our English learner world, they state, this is the amount of service time that is required. And it is required because stating such would then add up very quickly to exactly what staffing must look like in order to achieve that. But those minimums are very much established by U.S. Department of Justice. Any of the districts that come under some type of disagreement or audit or suit, like what I worked under with them, they will very clearly tell you exactly how much those minimums must be met and exactly what your staffing must look like. So when that division was told what their staffing must look like, they said that can't possibly happen. We can't support kids in these level ones in an hour a day, plus 45 minutes in another content area. The, the hour a day was the ELD intensive time. Another 45 minutes in another content area was going to be required. So Department of Justice stated that the other 45 minutes in another content area could be covered by staff 
who had been trained in L techniques, 60 hours specifically of English learner instructional techniques. So that meant professional learning for them to have approved professional learning, 60 hours worth for in that very large school district with more than 100 schools, about 7,000 people. So that, that became my job was the coordinator of professional learning for just L learning in L techniques. We developed a course that we offered it in a, many different versions. Schools could do it spread out over a few years. They could do it intensively over a year. There was a version that was a college graduate study approved through George Mason University. But that course covered everything soup to nuts that they would need and covered their 60 hours. Then there were schools that did PSYOP training through Center for Applied Linguistics and through Pearson. We brought in, luckily they have a very large grant because they're, they have more than 18,000 active English learners. Through the grant, we were able to bring in a lot of presenters and offer things like summer institutes with all sorts of courses and mini sessions. And we had the resources to do that, which was a luxury, but also at the same time, it was very intense at first for the principals who were told at one of our principal meetings that ultimately they were responsible for seeing to it that all of their staff received this training. I think you could have seen the roof going up and down during that meeting because it was a heavy lift at first. And there were a lot of learning pains. People, characteristic of it, I think back to people showing up for the trainings in the summer, you know, teachers in the summer, flip-flops, coffee mug in hand. I'm here for the Spanish training. And we would say, we're not teaching you Spanish. We're teaching you how to support kids who are in your classroom who speak another language at home or giving you some ideas about that. So... Yeah, there were a lot of misconceptions, but I will say that when I see folks from Prince William now, particularly their school administrators, real change occurred. Real change occurred. I haven't seen that anywhere since, but there became, over the course of working under the settlement agreement, the three years, and then they passed. And of course, they're always going to be, I don't know if they're monitored for the rest of their lives as a school district or how that works. We're not very far from Washington, D.C., so... I, I like to think they didn't wander too far out of their yard to find some folks to pick on. And I'm saying it like that because the things that can get a school district audited and into some settlement troubles with Office for Civil Rights are things that exist in pretty much every school district. It can be your staffing. It could be what happened with Prince William was initially one student and one parent complaint about a student who was identified with an IEP and was not receiving enough services in both the services under their IEP and then under L services. There used to be a big saying that I haven't heard in years, but that sped trumps ESL. And maybe you've heard that in your past. Very dangerous words. I've told my teachers, don't ever say that. And if you hear anyone say that, tell them, never say that again. Because we can't say that. It's not just that we can't say that. Right. It's that we have the obligation to meet all of our students' 
right. We have the um, yeah. thing to give it. It's not one or the other. Yeah, and it's I just a dangerous assumption. When I first came to Virginia in my first school district here, I was given a choice for one of my students who was fifth, he was a fifth grader and would be going to the middle school for sixth grade the following year. And I was told, you need to choose. Does he go to the school where he can receive special education services or does he go to the school where he can receive L services? Choose for him. And I said, he needs both. He's entitled to both. And it was an argument. And it's, we've got to get a teacher over there or we've got to change that situation because we can't exist in that situation. So I would say in most states, there's been growing pains, but hopefully we've all moved beyond that. Yeah, but again, like circling back to hard for adults, yeah. but in the best interest of children. And then I think is a, like a really crucial theme here is that when our systems aren't nimble enough to meet the unique needs of our learners. And I'm wondering, Kim, when you think back at the experience in Prince William and you go back to the scene <laughs> of how difficult those first conversations were, and then now hearing how things have changed, can you pinpoint some of the things that, that did indeed change as a consequence of the, as a consequence of this? Yeah, I think the things that I see, and it's a not really a tangible thing. It's an overwhelming sense of belongingness. One of my favorite mantras, and I've got, I've adopted this from a presenter in our L field, Ms. Dorito, Dorina Sackman, is roster equals responsibility. So if a student is on your roster, you are responsible for them. It's not, oh, it's that kid with an IEP. So that somehow erases their belonging and erases as a teacher for me, my responsibility to educate them. It's on someone else. It's on the SPED teacher or it's on the L teacher because they're an L. What I saw happen through that tremendous growth of the training of everybody, teachers and administrators is the idea of that belonging, that if a child is in that classroom, they're an equal, equitable part of that classroom. And that education of my using some strategies to differentiate for this assignment is gonna be great for this child and this child, whether they're an L or have special education services or not, and maybe some who are unidentified as anything, but we just think it would help, it opens the door for more of that targeted instruction that is equitably delivered to all students. And that, I think, was the real change that I saw. Yeah, yeah. Roster equals responsibility, Justin. Roster I, equals responsibility. Good one. Get the t-shirt. Yeah, yeah. Get the t-shirt. Roster equals responsibility. And I, I think... I still see a few challenges because of course where I am in Winchester we have not been through a DOJ and I don't want to don't want to go there I'm not saying let's do that but you're chipping away at hearts and minds in some cases and I have found that our secondary teachers some of that is tough so if I'm a chemistry teacher and I now have an L or a former L who's just exited the program in my chemistry class the question has come to me how come I don't get an L teacher to co-teach in here? Because I have an L. It's not a one-to-one -one ratio, first of all. 
And guess what? Tag your it. We can help you with some strategies and give you some ideas how to scaffold for that student. But it's back to that mantra, roster equals responsibility. Guess what? It's you. Oh, that is so powerful. I love the tag you're at. Hey, welcome to the game. Here you go. Kim, I love hearing you unpack your experience um, in Prince William County Schools, you know, with the Office of Civil Rights and everything that came out of that. It's amazing to me that you led that that charge of really bringing in the learning and the certification and putting the process in place that brought about real change, you know, in a significant like like large organizations like that, it's hard to drive that kind of change. And and it sounds like, you know, you were able to do that and it's been lasting. I want to kind of fast forward to today. You know, now you are the EL program coordinator in Winchester Public School District. What do you take from your experience there in Prince William County going through this, you know, OCR experience and then all the aftermath? How has that impacted you're building your program today. Maybe tell us a little bit about Winchester Schools and School District, and then tell us how you took that experience from Prince William County and implemented it in Winchester. Sure. First, I have to give credit where credit is due. My director of the L programs and services in Prince William County was, is a brilliant woman. She's no longer with Prince William. She is happily retired, but she, Janine Tarkey, I have to give credit to her. She had a vision. She had a vision for what an L program should look like in all of its facets and pieces. When the position became available here in Winchester, I was initially really interested in the position because it gave me back two hours of my life. I was commuting from where we live in this northern Shenandoah region of northern Virginia and commuting an hour and a half the days that I went into the office in Prince William each way. And that's on a good day because that area for shopping at Christmas time, forget it. There's no getting out. You're trapped. But coming to Winchester from where I live is a half an hour drive. And so I gained back two hours of my life. One thing that I quickly discovered when I got here is that the program needed building. So I went from an office of our, just our instructional office. We were 12 people and I'm an office of one. I have lovely and wonderful teachers. I'm now up to 30 teachers between our seven schools and we can still grow. I'm sure with more and more staffing. I have lovely liaisons here who are all part of our program. But the program in terms of processes and procedures, communications, translations, it needed to be grown. So I was able to take a lot of the model of what Janine Sagki had built for all the pieces and that she had to present for Office of Civil Rights. I was able to take that model and build it on a, a small form. In my first, I would say, two years here, two, three years, I kept looking for those other 11 people. Where are those other 11 people? I need those other 11 people from my former office because to cover all of, wear all of the hats is, is a little overwhelming, even on a small scale. All of the pieces have to be there. But it's been fun to build a program. You know, you you talk about speaking and about it being a, a game changer and a gateway to success in some of these other domains or acquiring a new language. 
Would you mind kind of unpacking that a little bit and maybe speaking from what you've noticed in your experience in your district or over the years, why, you know, why that emphasis on speaking? Absolutely. We know that a student cannot, if you think about writing, for example, both writing and speaking are productive modes. The student is producing language when they're speaking and they're producing language when they're writing. Whereas reading to oneself and listening are receptive modes, you really can't write something if you can't say it. So that's one, one reason why speaking is so important. I wanted to take a look this past spring for my teachers because I really felt that our speaking scores on our English language proficiency test, we use, we're a WIDA state in Virginia, so we use the WIDA Access 2.0 test as our annual language proficiency test for English for our students. I noticed that overwhelmingly our speaking scores could be a lot better. And particularly by the secondary levels of, for us, we our fifth and sixth graders are in an intermediate school, seventh and eighth are middle, and then high school is nine through 12. And so particularly in those grades, our speaking just needed to be better. And I wanted to take a look and say, how far could our students get if, let's say they're still a level one, even at a 1.9. They're in the level one range in speaking. How far could they get with their overall score? So I looked to see in our data how many students had reached a level 4.0 if they were a level one at all in speaking. The answer was zero. They could not be an overall 4.0 or higher headed for an exit in the state of Virginia is an overall score of 4.4. That's not possible if their speaking is still in that level one range. So then I went to level two. Those students who are still in level two, how many of them could make it to that 4.0 marker? Six. Six out of more than a thousand L's were able to make it to that. Only one of them was fifth grade or above. I want to say they might have been fifth or sixth grade. A couple of them were kindergartners, which is easy to see why that might happen for a younger child, where a lot of the measure would be on speaking. But for our older students, in order to get there, where that might happen, where is if receptively they were able to make that leap into higher scores because they were already a great reader and already a great writer in another language. So as they learned the new language, the target language being English, they were able to make that transfer without being able to speak much in the language. Some of us may feel that way about our own foreign language classes and in that, could we go to a country where that's the native language and carry on a high level conversation with someone? Maybe not, but maybe we could get through a book, but that's generally not the, that's not the reality for most of our students who are English learners in our schools. They are not, most of them, do not come with a high level of literacy in that first language where they would make that transfer. So it was pretty significant to say that as a gatekeeper, this speaking needs to be pretty strong. It needs to be a level three or higher in order for that student to make some great progress with their overall scores. 
Yeah, it takes it from being a gatekeeper to becoming the gateway, right? I mean, I know there's a lot of research behind if you can speak it, you can write it, but also speaking is uh, foundational for building reading as well. Um, Emma Sanchez was uh, one of my co-founders in, in building Flashlight 360, the initial product and getting it going. And she used to always say, she would always remind us, if you can speak it, you can write it. And I just love that. You kind of underscored that earlier. And really her thought was, and, and I heard you kind of talk about it earlier today as well, is the importance of really changing the hearts and minds and really it being the students that change the hearts and minds of the educators, of the adults that are in this process. And through getting to know the students, through serving them, through hearing them, hearing what they have to say and share and, and understanding their story. Um, as you're talking about the importance of speaking here and you're talking about, look, we've got to get students to at least to a level three, ideally, obviously even higher, but at least a level three. So it gives them a chance to be able to you know, building these other language domains. It makes me wonder, not that we're necessarily trying to gamify it, but we are also trying to accelerate students. And when it comes to Access 2.0 and it comes to the scoring of it, are all of the domains weighted the same? Do they all score the same? Do they all have the same importance in the composite score for a student? No, with weighted access, the reading and writing, which combine to form a literacy score, they are together are 70% of the weighted score for the overall score. So they really have to get there with the literacy. And what we're seeing through the speaking data is that they're not getting there until their speaking is at least in that level three range. So having the ability to speak and of course comprehend in English Students have to get to a certain level before, if you look at, for example, in Virginia, our standards of learning, they call them SOLs and our SOL tests, they are really begin to be accessible in a content area realm for students when they're in overall level three. Much before that, they need quite a bit of support and what we would call scaffolding in a content or general education classroom. Because if you look at where they actually are and what the students can do, and WIDA gives us that through their can do's, they really are not able to access some of those strands proficiently until at least that level three. And that's in all domains. So we do need to teach with all four domains in mind, listening, speaking, reading, and writing. But speaking really is highly important. And I would say my point in bringing this forward to my teachers was to say, this may be a very ignored domain in some classrooms, especially starting in and around fourth or fifth grade, where things become we switch from students learning to read to often reading to learn. They make that, we make that instructional shift in our world. When that shift happens, a lot of things start to be assigned to go and read this and then you're going to write this in response. So where is the speaking? Um, Oftentimes that doesn't happen in many classrooms where there's organized speaking, meaningful speaking with and about content. And, and so in your district, you know, as you approach this new school year, you know, what is it that you're doing 
across the district to kind of help focus more on speaking and help make that more of a central piece to the curriculum and, and the work being done. We are excited to bring flashlight learning in for our grades five through 12 for our English learners for our program. I am picturing in a small group setting when my teachers work with a small group within a classroom that they're going to use some of that wonderful and vast library of visuals to initiate content discussions that could spread to the whole classroom, but will be very meaningful for those English learners at levels one and two in working with the specific vocabulary that goes with those visuals and for they, they get a front loading a preview of using some sentences with that impressive vocabulary that goes with the visuals. So any and all of my teachers who have looked at the program and seen it are very excited to bring that to our program. Well, that's exciting. Thanks. Thanks for talking about Flashlight 360. That is how we got connected is you were working with Pam Wyatt and, and looking to put this in place and, and Pam connected us and recommended we talk more. And so it's been fun to hear your story and talk through this. I'm excited to hear how everything goes with you as you go to implement Flashlight 360. Uh, I think that, you know, one of the things that we hear a lot of times from districts as they're doing this is their teachers initially are kind of unfamiliar with the work of, you know, understanding where students are at in speaking and what they need next. And so they talk about how Flashlight 360 has kind of given them a framework to be able to build that common language within the district. Yeah. And I think having it as both a formative assessment and some benchmark data for them to go with, teachers have been asking for something, but how do I measure the growth in speaking? I want to measure that during the school year. And they really haven't had a tool at their access to be able to do that. Other than, of course, waiting for our access scores, which by the time we receive our access scores in June, the school year is over. And so then the students have taken the test in February. So by the time we're in August and back to school, <laughs> The scores are already six months old, so I am looking forward to having some formative assessments and hands-on targeted instruction as a result. And that's, that is the whole point, right, is we can't use old data to make decisions right now. We need right now data. That's right. We want to stay current with our students and know where they are. Kim, this has been so delightful being able to you know, learn about your journey, hear about the mission that you've been on. Um, I think we'd love to ask just maybe a couple of, of questions, kind of more rapid fire questions um, here as we kind of bring it home. One, for example, is if someone was a brand new EL director, if you were going to go start a brand new a program all over again, right? What's the one thing that you would do first in building a new EL program? If you stepped into one similar to maybe Winchester um, or a school district that basically the EL program needed to be built again and you went from a team of 12 to a team of one again. What, what's the first thing? I would do walkthroughs. Walk through your buildings and see what's happening for instruction in each of those. I guarantee in most districts there aren't that many schools that are the same that are cookie cutter in terms of what's happening with instruction in each of those. So that has to be something that you take into consideration to building your plan and start communicating with your ESL teachers, gathering your team 
one person out on a branch by themselves is not going to be too successful or as successful, I should say, as when they have others who are part of that team and are invested in doing what needs to be done. So if you look at what's already in existence, you can start to build from there. And I would say like looking at those piece, those pillars that we talked about that are outlined carefully in the Dear Colleague letter and in the USED toolkit, which is based on that Dear Colleague letter. Those outline all of the pillars that you need, but you have to look at the structures that are in place within your current district and evaluate what is that going to look like for Daniel Morgan Intermediate School as opposed to Daniel Morgan Middle School. And what's the difference between those and where can we go from in each place? I'm just delighted by this conversation, Kim, the, the, just the connection I've made to what you shared before is just the importance of evaluation, the importance of, of having an accurate sense of hearing from all of our students and all of the students that we serve. Yeah. In order to teach with the end in mind, which is best practice, we have to know what we want it to look like, right? Yeah. Tim would call that clear intended learning, right? Actually, I shouldn't say Tim would say that. That is, that is what we're talking about here is that's ultimately everybody said, you know, who, who says that, who, who's, whose word is that actually specifically, Tim? I want to make sure we give credit to where that. Oh, it comes from Stanford. It's Sarah Rutherford Kwok is her name. Yeah, that's right. Oh. I think one of the big things that, you know, back when I was at Prince William and we were working under the settlement agreement is that a lot of teachers and administrators, aha, was hey, this really isn't that different, what you're talking about. This is just good instruction. (laughs) And the answer to that is, yes, this is absolutely just good instruction. But the difference is that some of these supports and extra things that you do and differentiation, scaffolding support, These are things that are good for a lot of kids, if not all kids at some point or another in their educational career. But for an English learner, these things are vital. That's the difference. I'm pretty sure that was your mic drop moment right there, Kim. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Well, Kim, I think there are so many amazing things throughout that you've said and that you've shared that are going to really you know, impact our community and our folks. It's been really, really vibe. I know that uh, Tim and I are both going to start taking that roster equals responsibility. That was so powerful. And earlier when we were talking about the co-teaching and how it was hard for adults, but better for students. And I think that really resonated because I think a lot of the things that are best for students are harder for adults, right? Yeah, we have to get over ourselves and get past the point of saying, well, where's my desk? How come I don't have a closet? You know, all of those things. Where's my table in the lunchroom? That's right. Um, well, Kim, I'm sure a number of our folks would love to to connect with you. And if anybody has any additional questions or follow-up or they want to reach out to you, is there a good place for them to, is an email a good spot? Or do you have a spot on Twitter? Or how should they find you? My email's a great spot. Yeah. My email's a great spot. I'm always on email. Okay. We'll put your email into um, into the show notes as well as a link to a number of the other things we've talked about today. Uh, do you have any parting wisdom or advice for maybe a teacher that's just getting started? This is going to be their first school year. Uh, right now, they're just getting started. And let's say they're going to work with English learners. What would be your best piece of advice here as we wrap up? 
My best piece of advice is be a willing learner as a teacher. Be willing to collaborate and learn from other teachers around you because usually in almost every school, certainly in every school I've been in, there have been people who have had far greater years of experience and experiences compared to me. So I learned from a lot of those people and I can still learn from even brand new people. We learn best from each other's just like the kids do. The temptation as a new teacher is I've got to practice my and develop my own toolkit. And while that's true, the temptation is to grab the kids at the door and go. Try not doing that sometimes and actually staying and maybe having your group at a table within the classroom and being able to have those touch-based discussions with the classroom teachers who have those kids all day. Because that not only do those kids belong as part of that roster equals responsibility classroom, that's where they're spending the other six and a half hours of their day. So if you can talk about what's going on in science, even though you're not in there in science, you're going to be so much more helpful for your students and for their teachers if you collaborate. So that's my word of wisdom. Beautiful. Amazing. words, And, and to be constantly learning, right? I think what's hard, a lot of our new teachers, and as you know, you know, nationwide, it's a struggle to find highly qualified teachers. And it's certainly a struggle to sometimes find teachers who are certified as ESL and highly qualified as ESL teachers. We're getting a lot of what we call career switchers, people who we have career switcher programs in Virginia, where ESL is one of the things that if I could be a pizza delivery person and now go and I have a bachelor's degree, do a career switcher move. And within a few short months, I'm in a classroom. What's hard about that is when you come in as a ESL specialist position, it's like you're looked to, to bring something to the table in terms of that collaboration. And that's really hard to do if you've never been a teacher before. So I think some of our folks are in a really hard position with that, but just saying, that's okay. You know, you're going to learn, you're going to learn from some very experienced teachers and be willing to do that. It really cuts both ways, right? Mm -hmm. In the sense of often we talk about co-teaching, there's the benefit of having job embedded professional learning Yes. that everyone's skill set is honored as a part of that collaboration, but easier said than done, right? Um, (laughs) The challenges are real. Yeah. But also accepting that coherence in a student's school day is so vital. And my takeaway from this is ensuring that our programming and our systems really privilege the student experience before thinking about, say, how it might be inconvenient for adults. Inconvenient for adults that, and, but think about the equitable opportunities for the student. And are those happening if we fracture their day? So if you think of that student who has an IEP and they go with those folks and they're also an L and they go with our folks and they keep leaving the classroom, maybe they have speech. Gosh, I mean, some students may literally be left with 20 minutes that they're in their seat in their classroom. And that's actually just not okay. We have totally fractured their learning in a way that's not good. Yeah, we can do better and we have to do better. We have to do better than that. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Kim. Thanks for being here. Tim, thank you. I'm excited to to unpack this more with you, Tim. But Kim, thank you for being with us. All right. We'll see you later. Yeah. What a pleasure to meet you. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. 
The ML Chat Podcast is brought to you by Flashlight Learning. Flashlight Learning has helped deliver personalized feedback and progress monitoring to over 75,000 multilingual students nationwide. Flashlight 360 provides students with a platform to showcase their speaking and writing skills, helping teachers gain a better understanding of their students' individualized needs and inform instruction. Teachers are talking about the increased confidence and language proficiency growth they're seeing in their students. A recent study from Johns Hopkins School of Education demonstrates that Flashlight 360 had a significant positive impact on WIDA Access overall composite scores. To learn more, visit flashlight360.com/study.